Let us read in John chapter 6. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there had been only one boat. They also saw that Jesus had not boarded the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone off alone. Some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum, looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. For the Jews ask for signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Justin. Good morning. Uh, for those of you who do not know me, my name is Drew Moss, and uh, I work with a campus ministry here in town called The Table uh, that partners along with Sunnybrook in seeking to reach and disciple students at OSU. And so uh, they are kind enough to let me be a part of the team and, and tag along with them in office here and sometimes even get to speak here. And so that's what I get to do this morning, excited to open up God's word with you together. <clears throat> um, a, a few summers ago, I was at this high school camp in Oregon where I had kind of the opportunity to do a little bit of teaching there during that week. And, and on one particular afternoon, I had uh, taught this class on apologetics, kind of explaining uh, why I trust in the Christian faith, why I believe in the scriptures, why I believe in the God of the Bible. After, the, uh, after the, the lesson was over, uh, a handful of students kind of stuck around to talk, to ask some further questions or for clarification or to talk about some things. And as I'm sitting there kind of talking with this group of students, I notice kind of behind them that there's one student who's kind of hanging back. Uh, he hasn't left the classroom with all the others, but he's not coming up to me either. He's just kind of sitting there in his chair, which is usually a sign that someone wants to talk, but they don't want everyone else to hear what they're going to talk about. And sure enough, after everybody else had finished talking and kind of cleared out of the room, this young man came up to me and introduced himself. His name was Noah. 
And he was about 14 or 15 years old. He was the son of a youth minister. And Noah confessed to me in that room there that he wasn't really sure if he could keep believing in God anymore. When I asked him why, I was kind of surprised to find he did not give me any of the, the normal answers that, that I've heard before that you'd sometimes expect from high schoolers. Things like, um, if God is good, then why is there evil and suffering in the world? Or, or what does the Bible have against gay marriage? Or, or I've been hurt by people in the church. None of those things were, were anything that Noah offered up. No, what he told me was something I had not heard before, and that was that he, he had found himself struggling for a very long time to overcome specific sins, specifically pornography. That he'd been wanting to stop doing that, that he'd been feeling so bad about doing that, and he had prayed to God over and over again that God would help him to put this away, that he would take this temptation away from him so he could be better in this, but he did not seem to be experiencing any results. So one day Noah decided, that's fine. If, if God is not going to help me with this, if he can't help me, I'm going to help myself. And so he decided he was going to stop praying and he was going to start putting together a plan. And he was going to be more disciplined and he was going to create more hobbies for himself. And so anytime that he felt a temptation towards this particular sin, he would do something different. He would go for a walk or he would, uh, he would listen to music. And he had this kind of plan in place and he made himself extra disciplined. And what he began to discover was that it was seeming to work, that he was getting better in this area, and he was feeling really good about that, and he was telling me all about how much better he was at this, and how good he felt about that, and how he had figured this out, and, and he was also actually pretty clear to tell me multiple times how much better he was than all the other peers in his youth group who weren't as mature as him, and who weren't taking things like morality and righteousness as seriously as he was, which was a sign to him that he was on the right track, and they weren't and so he, he began to really kind of think that maybe he was done with this whole Jesus thing. We'll come back to Noah in just a bit, but for now I want to jump into this text. John chapter 6 is a really uh, good chapter. It's a long chapter, 71 verses long. We're mostly just going to be focusing on the middle portion of it, which you heard Justin read just a little bit ago. But I do want to touch on both the beginning and the end of this chapter because it's very interesting, kind of odd, actually. The chapter begins with Jesus miraculously feeding over 5,000 people and all of those people being enthralled with him and amazed by him. And it ends with most of those people not wanting him anymore and wanting to walk away. It's very interesting, just like Noah from here to here wanting to move their own direction. We'll get here. Let's talk a little bit about the beginning. Justin touched on it. There's a very famous story, the feeding of the 5,000. One of the few stories that all four Gospels talk about, which means it's important. All four authors thought, I cannot leave this story out. It, it's got to be in here. My readers have got to hear this. And the story goes, if you've grown up in church at all, you probably know the gist of it. Jesus is out teaching somewhere kind of in the wilderness, far away from any sort of town or village. And there's this large crowd, it says 5,000 men alone, that's not counting the women and the children, who are there to hear him teach. And they're hungry, and they're nowhere near any place to get food. And Jesus has compassion on them. And he says to his disciples, we need to feed these people. And his disciples say, you're crazy. And he says, go and find what you can. 
So they go, and one of them, Andrew, brings back a little boy with two fish and five loaves of bread, and and Jesus takes it, and he prays over it, and he begins to break it up and pass it out, and during that process, miraculously multiplies this meal so that it feeds everyone in the crowd with plenty left over. This is a really huge deal, this miracle here, because the last time someone was out in the wilderness miraculously feeding a bunch of Israelites, well, that was Moses. And that was in one of the most significant events in uh, Israelite history, when God had rescued and redeemed his people out of slavery and Egypt, and then he miraculously provided manna from heaven for them on their way to the promised land. And, And the Jewish people looked to the day when God might do something like that again, expecting someone to be like Moses. In fact, there were writings right around this time that talked about when the Messiah would come, that God would open up the storehouse of heaven once again, and manna would come down and feed all his people. And here you have this guy now miraculously feeding people with lots of bread in the wilderness. That is not lost on them. They're catching this, and and they're pretty drawn into this. And so it says, chapter 6, verse 14, when the people saw the sign he had done, they said, this truly is the prophet who has come into the world. And by the prophet, they mean the one that Moses had told them about in Deuteronomy 18. Moses said that one day the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, and when he does, you should listen to him. So they were waiting for this and looking for this, and now they see Jesus doing these miraculous things, and they're going, I think this is him. This is the guy we've been waiting for. This is the Messiah, and they're right. And they're also, at the same time, wrong. Verse 15 says this, Therefore, When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they can see that Jesus is this Messiah, this prophet. He's the king we've been waiting for. But what they have in mind is like a warrior king, a military ruler who will conquer Rome on their behalf and give them the freedom and the rescue that they've been waiting for. But that's not what Jesus is here to do. And so he withdraws before they can kind of force this coronation ceremony on him. That night, Jesus will send his disciples across the Sea of Galilee over to a town of Capernaum. And Jesus kind of waits himself for a little bit, but then he ends up catching up with them by walking on the water, walking across to catch them in the boat. Another really big and significant story that we don't have time to break down right now. But they end up there in Capernaum, and the crowd wakes up the next day. They don't see Jesus or the disciples anywhere, so they get in boats. They go to Capernaum, and they go to find him, which leads us to verse 25. In verse 25, it says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. That statement right there by Jesus in verse 26 is key to understanding this passage, to understanding what is going on here. Jesus tells them, I know that you see part of the truth about me, but not all of it. They see in Jesus that there is this power within him, this amazing ability to meet their desires, their desires for food, their desires for a king, their desires for freedom. And so they are willing to follow him wherever he goes. If they can't find him, they'll hunt him down to be with him, which should be a good thing, right? 
If you're Jesus, this is a great opportunity to meet the felt needs of these people and to build up a great following that you can teach and instruct and lead. And yet, Jesus doesn't seem to see it that way. In fact, Jesus seems a little bit perturbed at them coming to find him out. Why? Because he can see that they're missing the point. You notice that he calls the miracle that he performs, in verse 26, he calls it a sign. That's actually true all the way through the book of John. Every time you see a miracle in the gospel of John, it's referred to as a sign. And there's significance to that. What does a sign do? Well, a sign always tells you about something else. It doesn't tell you about itself. A sign is always pointing to another thing or giving you information or giving you insight on something else. And that is what this miracle in John 6 is designed to do. It's not merely about feeding people. The point was that they would see through the bread and see something deeper about the person that was giving it to them. But they're missing that. They're caught up in the bread alone. So verse 27, Jesus says to them, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. So Jesus says to them, listen, all the effort that you've spent chasing me down to get another meal, you should be spending that kind of effort, that kind of work towards seeking something greater, a food that won't perish, something that will last. You should be working for that. And so they say, okay, what do we do? You tell us, what, what is it that God wants for us? What kind of work do we need to give to him so that we can have this kind of food? And then it's at that point, in the next five or six verses, Jesus is going to throw them two curveballs, two plot twists that they probably would not have seen coming. The first one comes in verse 29. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent first big twist, Jesus says, is the work that is required to have this greater food is not really work at all. Not in the traditional sense of the world. What we're called to do, what people are called to do to have this great food is to simply trust in Jesus, to believe in the one that the Father has sent. In other words, the food that you greatly need, the stuff you need most, is free. Jesus actually sounds a lot like the prophet Isaiah or God speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Back in chapter 55, verses 1 through 2, here's what he says. Come, everyone who is thirsty. Come to the water, and you without silver. Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without silver and without cost. Why do you spend silver on what is not food and your wages on what does not satisfy? What God is saying to his people there in the middle of Isaiah and what Jesus is saying to these people and to us here in John chapter 6 is that in a world where people are scrambling to find bread, both literal and figurative, 
scrambling to find whatever it may be, food or money or meaning or significance. In a world where people will break their backs to finally be satisfied, Jesus says the one thing that will truly satisfy you is free. But they're skeptical of that. Verse 30. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they look to Jesus and they say, okay, you want us to believe in you? You want us to trust you? Prove it to us. What, what sign are you going to do to show us that we should do those things? And, of course, the sign they go back to is Moses giving manna in the desert. All right, I mean, you, you got close with this last miracle, but can you do what we saw Moses do back then? It, it probably doesn't hurt that this is, if he performs this sign, they get another free meal out of it. But this is what they're asking him for. Here is Jesus' response, 32. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says, listen, you need to know it was never Moses giving the bread to the people there in the desert. It was always God who sent the bread from heaven, and he's doing it again right here in front of your eyes, and then he gives them the second big plot twist, and that is this, that the bread that they have been waiting for all this time is a person. It's 34. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus tells them God is sending new bread from heaven that you should want, and they say, okay, give us that. That's what we want, and Jesus says to them, you're looking at him. I am the bread of life. I am what you've been waiting for. I am the one thing that will truly satisfy and sustain you from beginning to end. And this is the crux of the message in John chapter 6. This is the point of the miraculous feeding at the beginning. This is the reason that Jesus won't play along with them when they come to find him later in Capernaum. And this is the point that he is trying to make all the way through that he does not want them to miss. I think John Piper puts it really well when he says the point of John chapter 6 is that Jesus did not come primarily to give bread, but to be bread. Jesus will want to stress this to the point that he will repeat that same statement about himself, that he is bread two more times, and then he'll explain it a little bit more if you jump down to verse 48. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And this is key. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus tries to explain to them in this moment, I did not come 
to be a means to your end. I did not come so that you could have more bread or so that you could have an earthly kingdom or so that you could witness more and more miraculous signs. I came so that you could have me and that through me you could have life with the Father. But these people don't want that. All this talk of him coming from heaven. What are you talking about? You came from heaven. You came from Nazareth. We know your parents. We know Mary and Joseph. All this talk of him being the one thing that they need. Who are you to tell us what we need? And this idea of eating his flesh, his flesh given for them as the bread of the world. It's just, it's a little much for them. So by the time this whole dialogue back and forth is done, you see their response in in verse 60. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? And then down in 66, at the very end, it says, from that moment, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So you see this group of people who come to him seeking his teaching, and then at one point they love him so much, they're so amazed by him that they want to make him their king. And then by the end of the chapter, this group of people, and notice at the end, John doesn't just say the crowd, he says disciples. People who have made it their goal to follow Jesus and learn from Jesus, they all decide they don't want him anymore. Why? Because they came to Jesus to get something other than him. And unfortunately, they are not the last to come to Jesus wanting that same thing, wanting something other than Jesus. Paul will talk about this in 1 Corinthians 1. That was the other passage that Justin read just a little bit ago. And in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul explains how he travels around from place to place preaching the same gospel that Jesus preached. This idea that what you need most is Jesus and the life that he gives and the way that you get that is through believing in his sacrificial death, his body that he gave for you on the cross and then rising again to give you life. But all of that sounds kind of foolish to people. And often it sounds, well, not real practical to a lot of people. And so he says in 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 23, for the Jews ask for signs, just like they did in John chapter 6. And the Greeks, that is the Gentiles, seek wisdom. That is, they want impressive things. They want really cool ideas. They want really eloquent talk. They want things to kind of blow their minds. But he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the the Gentiles. A lot of people don't want that. And so many would reject Jesus and Paul and his message about Jesus. They would reject him outright, not wanting anything to do with that. But not everybody. There were a lot of people who liked this message and liked this Jesus that Paul would talk about. But the Corinthians, actually, the Corinthians even fit in that category. He's writing to a group of people who have chosen this Jesus, who have chosen to believe this message and follow after him. The issue is that a lot of the people in Corinth seem to also like being important. 
And they also really liked flashy gifts like speaking in tongues or prophecy. And they also really liked being impressive to other people. And it seems as you read through the book of 1 Corinthians that what a lot of them had figured out was that Jesus was a really great way of getting those things. Sadly, that mindset continues to this day. There are many today who come to Jesus not because he is bread, but because they think that he can give them the bread that they really want. Not because they find Jesus glorious, but because they find him useful. The most obvious and egregious form of this way of thinking is what we call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth movement, where there are preachers who will stand up in front of a crowd or on a television screen or whatever else and proclaim that that the reason Jesus came was to make you rich, that Jesus came to give you blessings. And if if you'll just trust him and if you'll just pray hard enough and if you'll just have enough faith and if you'll be a good enough Christian, that he's just gonna pour blessing out on you and he's gonna keep you from ever getting sick and everything is just going to be onwards and upwards from here is a twisted and perverted form of the teaching that is real from the gospel. It is not biblical. And most of us, my guess in this room, are, are able to see that, are able to see that for what it is. But there are also, truthfully, more subtle forms of this. Let's say something along the lines of, if I follow Jesus, he'll ensure that I will have a good and happy marriage. That if I'm faithful to Jesus and I pray to him, he'll keep all my loved ones safe and healthy. Or, or if I follow Jesus, he'll make me into a better person. Actually, that's, that's what Noah was after. Which sounds like a good thing, right? Isn't that a good thing to want to be a better person? To want to sin less? Yes, That's why I was confused when I first sat down and listened to Noah, but the longer he and I sat there and the longer I sat and listened to him, I began to realize something, and that was that Noah didn't want Jesus. He just wanted a better version of himself. That Noah didn't want to please Jesus. Noah didn't want to put away his sin so that he could be more satisfied in his king and savior. He just wanted to not feel so guilty at night. He wanted to be able to feel better about himself, and and what he also really did seem to enjoy was feeling better about himself than about all the other idiots around him. I remember telling Noah after some time of listening to him, I'm not sure if you can expect God to deliver on that. First of all, God's not interested in just magically taking everything away. We don't get that promise in the scriptures that he just takes everything away without any effort or work on our part. Second, what you're wanting is to feel really good about yourself, to to feel better about who you are. What you're wanting, actually, I told Noah, is, is something very similar to what the Pharisees wanted. The Pharisees had figured out that God and religion were a really great way to feel really good about themselves. To be able to feel really good about their own righteousness and to be able to look down on everyone else around them as less than them. 
And Jesus condemns that. And so Noah, though, seems to be going after those things. And if Jesus will work, if, if praying to him and seeking him is what's going to help me do that, then fine, that's what I'll do. But if that's not going to work for me, then Noah had decided I'll just go elsewhere. Now, here's where this gets a little bit tricky, is that Jesus... If you read through the Bible, you see clearly Jesus does give bread, both literally as in John 6 and figuratively. Jesus gives good gifts to those who come to him. There are some things that we can see in the Bible that are always true. Every time a person comes to Jesus, they can count on Jesus giving them these kinds of things that he will always give them grace that Jesus gives eternal life to ever, whoever comes to him in faith. He gives us a new identity in Christ. He gives us his own Holy Spirit. And then there are other things that Jesus, in his great generosity, often provides for us, though those things are not promised to us in this life. Things like a house, an income, money to provide for our needs, good and fulfilling relationships, physical health even. And it's okay to ask for those things from God. And it's okay to enjoy those things when he gives them to us. But if we're not careful, we can sometimes become more satisfied with the gift than we are with the giver. And as good as those things are, the truth is this, that we weren't made for the gifts. We were made for the giver. And if all the other things go away, if I don't have all the other gifts that I want in this life, as painful as that may be for me, as hard as that may be for me, the consistent truth that Scripture puts forth is that Jesus is enough. Can we see that? Do we believe that? When things don't go the way that we expected, when Jesus doesn't give us exactly what we want, or, or even worse, when some of the good things that we've had are taken away from us, when our health starts to fade, when tragedy strikes and we lose a loved one, when marriage isn't going as smoothly and as, as beautifully as I wanted it to go, do I get angry? Do I find myself disillusioned? Do I find myself feeling bitter? If so, that's probably a sign that I have some sort of unspoken agreement between Jesus and myself. I follow him, and he gives me these things, and he's not keeping up on his end of the bargain right now. When we do that, we look a whole lot like the crowds. There's another option that we could respond in those moments like Peter and the other disciples, verse 67, after all of these disciples have decided to walk away from Jesus, he turns, it says, so Jesus said to the 12, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter gives me hope. Because the truth is, if, if you know your Gospels very well, if you read through Peter's story, you, you'll see that Peter still doesn't really have Jesus all figured out just yet. 
And he still seems to come to Jesus with mixed motives at times. Yes, he wants Jesus, but he also wants power. Yes, he wants Jesus, but he also wants prominence. But even when Peter doesn't fully get it, he knows enough to keep hanging on to Jesus. When life doesn't go the way he wants, when Jesus doesn't meet all of Peter's expectation, he can see the truth that no one else has the words of eternal life, that there is nothing else that can satisfy. And I need that reminder in the middle of my own sometimes mixed motivations. So actually, we have one of those every week. This reminder. We come together every week as a church to remember this truth. That what Jesus gives us by his death and resurrection is eternal life. But it's important to note that even that eternal life is not a gift that is separated from who Jesus is. No, no, no. You go forward about 11 chapters, John chapter 17, and Jesus will define for you what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they would know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That is what makes eternal life good is that it is eternal life with the one we were made for with the God who created us, with the Son who satisfies. And that's what we remember whenever we come together. And as one body, we remind ourselves of this, that this bread is his body, his flesh given for the life of the world. It is good. It is enough. It satisfies. So let's take together, brothers and sisters. And this is his blood given for the forgiveness of our sins. It is good. It is enough. It satisfies. Let's drink together.